Thank you, worship team. All of God's people should have said, Amen. Lord of Lords. Well, if you are uh, visiting with us today, we've been in a series in the book of Philippians. So, good morning, saints. Let me say hi. Hi, it's me. Um, and I also uh, want to make just a couple of uh, quick comments. Uh, in your bulletin, there's a place for taking notes. If you're a note taker, I welcome you to do so. And um, I try to instruct people who have made professions of faith in Christ how to move ahead in that. And so if you were wondering as you're listening to me um, rave on this morning uh, and wonder what does that mean to know Christ, let me just encourage you at the end of the service, feel free to come up. I always hang out up in the front, seek me out. If you don't have time today, we can make an appointment, but uh, there's nothing more exciting than to see people come into a personal relationship with Christ. He came into the world. Some of us at least know that story, that somebody died on a cross. There was a reason for that, for the sins of men, and uh, he did that so that we could be reconciled with the God who made us. I know he's been largely forgotten in our culture, but there is a God who made us and is responsible for all that we see. And uh, we're responsible to him. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention. Tonight, as Don mentioned, is prayer meeting. All right. All right. Yes. Listen to the enthusiasm. No, you're good. You're, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm applauding you. <laughs> and uh, a good place to uh, learn how to pray because we're even growing in that as we're pressing in together. And so... I felt like the Holy Spirit showed me something to share tonight, and so I'll be doing that, and we'll launch into prayer. Also, everyone that helps what happens on Sunday morning happen, and there's all kinds of people, tech people, worship team, uh, hospitality people, everything that happens. In a few weeks out into the new month, about the 13th, I think, is the Sunday, we're going to try to have an extended meeting after church. We'll provide food so you can stay but as many as possible to be here so that we can cast vision and kind of shore up some things and do the very best we can with what God's given us, okay? So uh, just tuck that away. You'll be getting a mass email and more specific information as the days uh, move on. So, all right. Can we pray again? Are you sure? Okay. God... I acknowledge complete dependence upon you as I've already verbalized and... I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds today. I know in interacting with saints over 40 years of ministry that sometimes something that's just an aside that wasn't even that important in my mind, the Holy Spirit drives that home into someone's heart. And so we just give you permission to do what you need to do, to speak to whomever about whatever. But I also ask God that you would help uh, what I'm communicating to be clear and um, that you would be getting the honor and glory that is due you, that the Lamb might gain the reward of his suffering in our generation. We might see it. And even through our lives in the here and now at Harmony, I pray for help today. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. All right. There's my old uh, ruins from Lindisfarne, Holy Island, as a reminder that we are part of the continuing saga of God building his kingdom through the church of Jesus. And uh, it will continue to happen until he returns, which, depending on how you're looking at uh, current events, you might think is pretty close, especially when presidential candidates in America go up against the Pope. Uh, makes life uh, quite entertaining, don't you think? Does anybody ever ask the hard question? This is not part of the sermon. I don't do politics, you may have noticed, nor do I think it's wise. I think my job is to help us have a Christian biblical way of thinking, and then you have to process what you're supposed to do between you and God. Does that make sense? So if anybody has some kind of an agenda, you might as well know that conversation won't go very far. But I asked myself the question. There was a response to the Pope that said it was disgraceful for a spiritual leader to judge someone else's Christianity. I'm in big trouble then because that's my job. That's my job, and it would certainly be the Pope's job over his flock. 
Hello? Sorry, I just couldn't resist that one. Okay. So here's my question today. Why be normal? <laughs> Why be normal? Yes, and we should. Why be normal? Now, there's a reason I'm saying this. And so I'm just going to stack the deck up front. I believe that most of what we've experienced in American Christianity is average Christianity, not normal. So everybody knows this story, I think. You know, bad illustration, but you know who it is, right? All right. No, that's not Godzilla. <laughs> Starts with a G. It's Goliath, right? And there's David, the little shepherd boy. And the reason I put that out, I just needed some illustration so that, you know, you, you, you get your mind around the story. Most of us know, at least, even non-Christians know, that we talk about taking down Goliath as facing the big opposition that we're in in business or in our personal life or legally or something like that. We use that as an illustration, right? And um, there's, so we know a little bit about this story that this young shepherd boy uh, finds five smooth stones and takes out the, the giant, you know, all of the, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the Israeli army, their knees are shaking because he's so big, you know, and oh, who wants to go up against him? You know, it's like an MMA match and they don't want to get in the ring with him. And uh, this kid comes along who knows God. Oh, well, there's a radical idea. He really knows God. And he says, what is this guy what is this guy choosing us off? Do you realize that when he's mocking the Israel army, that he's mocking the God of heaven? Why doesn't somebody do something about this? And even his brothers are like, you little snot nose, who do you think you are? You know, whenever somebody shakes it up like that, you know, somebody says, you know, maybe we could trust God for something radical. That, oh, shut up. I mean, Really? Well, there's, and you know, he does, he wins. He knows, I'll take this uncircumcised Philistine out for you, and he does it, bam. Next thing you know, he's a big hero, because that's the way pop culture works, friends. Better than a rock star. He's up there. But there's a little hidden part of the story that I want to use as an illustration. What I'm doing now is not explicating or exegeting the text. That means the text has truth that you need to learn, and when you exegete it, you unpack what the Scripture is saying. But I want to use it to make an application, okay, just by way of application. And here's the part of the story. Does anybody remember that Saul says, I heard there's some kid who wants to go take out this giant. Bring them to me, and they meet, and he goes, oh, well, if you're going to go up against a giant, here, put on my armor. I got this really cool armor. I got this really sharp sword. Put it on. So David tries it out, and here's what happens. He fastens on the sword over the tunic. He tried to walk around because he was not used to them. He said, I can't go in this I, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Isn't that a great comment? I, what do you, you want me to wear? I know this works for you, Saul. Of course, you're not doing too well. The giant's still out there screaming. You know, but I know this works. And, and by the way, there's more truth and fiction in that one. I know it's working for you, sort of. Sort of. If you want to know which page in your pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can open up to page 569. That's where we're going to be studying today. But this little story about David where he takes the armor off, I just love that statement because what he's saying is Saul's armor is a hindrance. I'm not used to that. I know how to work this... What, what was that? Slingshot. And God has always helped me take out a bear, take out a lion. I've always been able to protect my flock so I don't see this as being that different. So I have to take that off. Take off Saul's armor. The trappings that are not really working. So, I thought that was a vivid illustration in my mind of the way we do Christianity often. We're wearing all this stuff. Other people taught us, you got to wear this, you got to have this, strap on this sword. And it's like, this isn't working for me. Here's the little secret. It ain't working for you, the other person either. You know what I'm saying? It's not working. 
I'm living average. I'm clunking around in all this stuff, but I'm living average. Substandard of what God had in mind for me. There's a lot more fun to the Christian life. And when I say fun, I don't mean partying all the time. I mean enjoying taking out a couple of Goliaths once in a while. Legalism, surface Christianity, the trappings of what you're supposed to look like when you clean up and come on Sunday morning, you know. And, of course, none of us have any problems when we come to church. Everything's great, you know. That's not the real world, is it? So I want to thank those who are leaning in and learning and those of us who are, like, kind of been... Well, let me use an illustration. We were singing, um, Come Thou Fount. You know the line that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. (laughs) Years ago, I think I'm safe because I'm sure these people are in heaven now. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) There was a church secretary who I was talking to and she was just going off on that and saying, I hate that verse. I'm like, really? She says, yeah, prone to leave the God. She, I've, I've never been prone to leave the God I love. And she was one of the nastiest people I ever met. The fact is, <laughs> you not only left, you're on the next continent. You didn't even know it. You've long ago left the God. You just don't see it. Are you following what I'm saying? So just in case there may be some of us stuck in places like that, I want you to... Lean in a little bit today and listen. Mm, you must unlearn what you have learned, as Yoda said. Here's what Paul says about his view. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I think most people who've read the Bible know that verse. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we just stopped there, you'd have a whole sermon, right? Thank you. That's what I thought, Gene. This is not about just some keeping some rules, some outer behavior, having on Saul's armor. This is about something that's down in his DNA. And then it goes on, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I don't know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Before I move on, let me just put this. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can I just say that that has something to do with normalcy? Okay? And then, to unpack it, look at these underlying sections. That's all I want to mention. If I'm staying here, Paul is in jail. The saints at Philippi, who are his favorite, one of his favorite churches. Remember, we told the story out of Acts chapter 16, and we'll reference it again. Uh, they were engaged. Both, but they jumped in with both feet. And they were part of his gospel ministry. And they're praying for him. And as best as we can tell, Paul got out of jail on this one and did get to come back and visit them. So he says, I know you're praying for me. I'm pretty sure this is going to turn out for my release. And you'll be able to see me again and rejoice in me and all of that. And we'll rejoice together. But here's how I see it. If I live on in the flesh, if they don't behead me yet, because they did eventually, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But... If I depart and go to be with Christ, well, that's even better. In other words, for the normal Christian, it's a win-win. Now, most of us aren't in a big hurry to go see Jesus, right? Come on, be honest with me here. I mean, I'm being honest with you. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm excited. Do I want to go today? Not necessarily. (laughs) I'm going to have... But if he says it's time to go, hey, that's very much better. Anything that I can, one of the things that helps me with that, this, this is free, this is a sidebar, it's all, this is free, I'm not charging you for this one. You know the scripture says that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. What keeps us here? Why do we want to stay? It's our pleasures, right? It's the things that make life fun for us. So I have to remind myself, anything that's fun and fulfilling here what we experience in the presence of God blows it away. So you understand when a person is tired of life, and it's like, I'm ready to see Jesus for sure. 
Paul's just saying, this is normal. I'm ready to go, but if I stay, I've got something to do. It will mean fruitful labor for me. What is it about the Maynard G. Krebs reaction to work? Work. Remember him? Dobie Gillis, any old folks here, you know what I'm talking about. Work. He was a beatnik. Every time he said, I got to go to work, and he'd go, work, you know, because we've got this aversion to work, you know. We work so that we can get enough money so we can play. But that's not really the way God designed it. And that there's labor for us can be a fun, fulfilling thing. You know, if you do what you love, love what you do, whatever that little happy face guy, what is that? Never mind. See, my ADD's kicking in. My apologies. Who is this guy, Paul? Is he a superhuman person? He's one of our heroes, right? He's one of our heroes. But he's not a superman. There's been many inspiring saints down through the history of the church. And even today we have some of them. Uh, I think some of you young people have probably read maybe Platt's book on radical and uh, maybe Francis Chan. Anybody know who I'm talking about? And here's what happens to us. We look at them and we're inspired by them, but too often we're just voyeurs. Their stories and their radical preaching ooh ooh i hear that radical preaching and i go ooh that ooh that gave me little shivers ooh now i've done my duty for the week i can go home i got shivers i'm a voyeur no the reason we have those kind of models is that we should be able to claim some of that for ourselves we need to have a goliath takeout session doesn't have to be as big as him okay you're all very quiet all of a sudden, am I? Okay. We should be able to claim some of us, uh, some of this for ourselves. The whole concept of having the kingdom first, I believe, is part of normalcy. It's part of the normal Christian life. My hobbies, my job, my family, everything else that I have to take care of is there to support that kingdom view. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. In your body. We never often enough ask the tough questions. Yes, I can afford to do that, but should I? Yes, I can get involved in this, but should I? Is this what God wants? Is there an opening for the good news here? Is there some good purpose? Do we, and I'm not saying we have to be legalistic and crazy about it, but do we ever ask the question? Do I have time to put my hand to his work in some way? I'm going somewhere with this, just to be blunt. Because I'm going to bet money that a lot of us do not have another kingdom ministry that we've got our hands in. Now, some might, and they may have such a good thing going that if, you know, if I were to say, hey, we could use help here, I would say, don't bother, because you need to stay on task over there. That's a kingdom work. You need to do it. But if we're part of a fellowship, there's a kingdom work God's trying to do right here. And if I don't have something better, you know, like if you're Franklin Graham and you happen to attend Harmony because you like Hawko's preaching, uh, I'm not expecting you to do anything here because you've got something on your plate. But that's probably not the case for most of us. And so Paul loves the Philippian church because it was a great church. And I want to talk for just a second about great churches. In the history of the kingdom going forward, there have been many great churches. Philippi was one of them. The church at Jerusalem was one of them. Antioch was one of them. Ephesus, Rome. Later on in the history of the church, Wittenberg. Anybody know what that was? The Reformation, right? In Germany was a great church. Geneva had a great church. Edinburgh, Scotland had a great church and a great renewal. Northampton, Massachusetts. Does that ring any bells? It's where the Great Awakening kicked off, right? Under Jonathan Edwards, had a great church. Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Anybody know whose church that is? John Piper. I mean, there's bunches of great churches. Go around the country, a saddleback. Go name them. You know, there's tons of them. There's great churches. Let me just be clear. First Baptist Church in Dallas, been there. Every one of those great churches had good leaders. But I'm going to tell you what else they had. Great followers. 
None of those ministries, none of the big-name guys you listen to on your iPod and on TV and on the radio every week, they're not there because they did it by themselves. They're there because people wanted to participate in the kingdom and push them forward for the sake of the kingdom. See, I'm good. I think I'm good. Sharon, I think I'm good. I got time. Another sidebar. When I did my research for my doctorate, I, I interviewed executive pastors to some of the names I just mentioned. And I loved especially the executive pastor that worked for John Piper because he had a vision in his mind. He saw that this man had a large potential ministry, not just to Bethlehem Baptist Church, but to the whole country. And many of you have read his books, right? Quality stuff. I've heard him speak. I mean, he's, he's got a broad ministry. His executive pastor was a kingdom-oriented follower, and here was his vision. We're on a ladder. John is above me. I come up under him, and I shove him up to the next run. <laughs> I thought that was great anyway. <laughs> and that's what he's doing, pushing him further and further up. And really, in a way, that's what we should want to do with our own fellowship. Get it on the ladder and start pushing it up, one rung at a time. doesn't matter how fast. We're not in competition. But God wants to do something. Great followers. Participants are what made the churches great. Not attenders. Participants. Okay? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I forgot to write that this is the NIV version. If you're reading it out of our present text, the NASV... It uses the word participation. Here it's translated partnership. Some of you like knowing the Greek. I appreciate getting feedback that I'm not wasting my time by giving you the Greek and the meaning of the words. But the word partnership in this NIV translation or participation, which is better, I think, sharing, you know the word, koinonia. It's the Greek word for having in common. We have something in common. We're sharing this together. But here's what's kind of fun. You were participants in the gospel from the first day until now, he said. Your participation in the gospel. Remember when we looked at the story of the founding of the church in Acts 16? Anybody remember that? It's only been like four weeks ago or something like that. I'm just checking. There's one section of that story we haven't looked at yet because it's loaded. I'm not going to look at it yet. But remember the first part. They go to a place by the riverside where they suspected there was a prayer group, and there was, and the Lord opened Lydia's heart to receive the words of Paul. So she became a Christian. Her whole family became a Christian. Her home became the first church building. Then later, he gets put in jail for good things, for doing good things. That's part of the story I don't want to tell. And uh, he's in jail. They're praying and praising God after being beaten illegally. Remember that? And there's an earthquake, and the jailer thinks, uh-oh, everybody's gone. I don't think I ever explained the jailer was going to kill himself because he was going to get killed anyway if he lost all his prisoners. That's the way they played in the old days. <laughs> and where you work needs some major overhauls, that's for sure. <clears throat> Corrections, that's what it was. And <clears throat> so there's an earthquake, you know, and, and, and so... The shakenness of that man brings him to faith. His whole family comes to faith. And all of them jump in immediately serving Jesus. That's why he says, you've been participants with me from the very beginning. You guys got it. You jumped in. You're part of it. Right in the thick of it. Full stop. That's a British expression, right? Straightway. Here's another verse. Paul says, if I can get this, here it is. It is right for me to feel this way about you all when he's praying for them. Because I have you in my heart since whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. This is the NIV. All of you share in God's grace with me. The NASV says all of you are partakers. It's almost like these words are interchangeable. Here's the Greek word here. There's a little nuance. Partnership, sug koinonos. See koinonia again? There you have in common again, right? Sharing. 
but sug, which means together sharing. Well, aren't we already together sharing? Not in the same way. Let me illustrate. So, we had a fantastic time at my installation. There's a few people sitting over there. I won't mention any names. Adrian. Anyway, so, and uh, Janine. And, and they were kind of with a team of how many people did you have on that team? 10 to 15 people led the charge on that phenomenal day and that big meal that we had. Wasn't it great? And we had how many people fed? Two hundred? Two seventy-five? No, two. So we fed two hundred and thirty people. It was a great day, wasn't it? Here's the deal: we all fellowshiped, we all shared in the meal, didn't we? But we all didn't make it happen. Both things are good. But what I'm getting at is that team of 15 people were the sug coin on us. They were the joint partnership. That's another way to translate it. A joint concern. Partners, like when you start a business and then you're committed. You've got to make it go. They're invested. Okay? And by the way, that doesn't mean that everyone that ate and wasn't part of that did naughty. That's not at all right. You'll have your chance to do your partnership in something as well so we know who to call when we want to eat okay then we'll need to know who to call when we want to do other things you know reaching people with the gospel etc we all are partakers of grace together participants great churches were great not only because of their leaders who i think were normal but because their followers were participants they were normal and that's what made it work. Great churches. So now in your notes, we're down past that uh, participation section. We're looking at the problem side, if we could. And that is the issue of passivity. And I want to talk about uh, what happens to us, how we get in trouble a little bit. I've said this before. I'm going to be real candid. I haven't been sure for the first two years. You weren't quite sure what to make of me, and I wasn't sure what to make of me either. So I'm not sure we remember everything that I've said. So if this is a repeat for you, listen anyway. I hate to even bring up this word because it is so horribly misunderstood. You have a little R on your note paper. It's revival. And when you use that word, people think all kinds of wrong things. They think... Let's have a revival meeting, you know, and we put something on the marquee that we're scheduling a revival meeting for a certain time. But a revival meeting can't be scheduled, not in the literal sense, because revival is a work that comes from the Holy Spirit. And guess how we define it? This being quoted by Richard Lovelace, uh, speaking about the thinking of Jonathan Edwards, who had it right, I believe. Revival is this. It's not excitement. It's not a worked-up meeting. It's an outpouring of the Spirit which restores people to God, of God, to what? Normal. From average to normal. From average to normal spiritual life after what? A period of corporate declension. Like the second law of thermodynamics, everything goes from a state of repair to disrepair. Let me read a little more of this statement. I didn't want to put it all on the screen. It's an outpouring that restores the people of God to normal spiritual life after a period of corporate declension. Periods of spiritual decline occur in history, get this, because the gravity, the downward pull of indwelling sin keeps pulling believers first into formal religion and then into open apostasy. I remember Ben remembered that one when I quoted it one other time, right? Formal religion and then into open apostasy. That's where we are today, right? We have formality that's basically you're walking around with Saul's armor. Clunk, clunk, clunk. It's not working. That's formal. And then you have churches that don't even believe the Bible anymore. And you think, how did they get that? Where are they? How did they do that? Because they've apostasy. They've fallen away. That's what apostasy means. 
Here's what it says. Periods of awakening alternate with these downward pulls as God graciously breathes new life into his people. In fact, every major advance of the kingdom of God on earth is signaled by a general outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you can go down through the history of the church, including the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, launched missions as we know it today, modern missions that happened over the last 150 years came out of awakening. In fact, I look back on our history, my own life, I know that there was revival happening in, in uh, Western Canada at the time of the Jesus movement in the 70s. I'm a result of some of that. And some of you are too. There was a move of the Spirit. There was a huge ingathering of hippies. Yeah, on the West Coast, getting baptized in the surf. I remember it was great. I mean, I wasn't there. I was over here. But it happened to me as well. It's a work of the Spirit. So let me, let me um, mention, I was wrestling a while back with with some of the things I had encountered two years ago when I came. So I had been originally planning to preach through the book of Judges. Let me explain why. Now, I I feel like some of the heat came off of me uh, as we've made some forward motion and some things kind of got sorted out. But uh, but here's why I thought about the book of Judges. Because if you know the book of Judges, this was the season right after Joshua. All during the days of Joshua, the elders of the land followed Joshua. They said, we're going to obey God, right? If it's too much for you to obey God, then don't. But as for me and my house and all of that kind of language comes out of Joshua, and they all said, yes, sir, we're in. Then it says, Joshua dies. By the way, this is what's happened to the church. Do you understand? Joshua dies. Another generation arises who did not know what? Not Joshua. They didn't know him either. They didn't know the mighty acts of God. Oh, there we are. We haven't taken out any Goliaths in like how many years? Is is there a living God? Does he actually stick his hands in here and do stuff? You better believe it, friends. So they didn't know the mighty acts of God. And what did they do? They turned their back on God and started to worship the Baals. Now, here's one of my favorites. Baals was a terrible, sexually perverse worship system of a fertility God. That's what that was. So you have all the righteous rules of the Ten Commandments, and you have the children of Israel living in the exact opposite zone. Here's one of my favorite stories, okay? Is it all right if I tell you one of my favorite stories? No? Okay, I'm moving on. It comes out of, out of Judges. Some of you have heard of um, Gideon. We love the story of Gideon because God says, too many, too many, let's, let's get a smaller army. Let me put that aside. Before he goes to war, God calls him out, and he's saying, I want to deliver my people because they're being oppressed. They don't listen. God allows the enemies around them to oppress them, and he raises up judges to deliver them. This one is going to be Jeroboam, contending with Baal. That's what his name means, Gideon. If you know the story, he was not a mighty, brave warrior, even though the angel says to him, Hail, mighty warrior. And he goes, Who are you talking to? It's not me. I want you to lead my children of Israel into battle and win the day and free them up. And he's like, You got the wrong guy. No, no, I got the right guy. If, I, if you're with us, the Lord is with you. If you're with us, how come all these terrible things are happening? You're the right guy. You got it. You get it. Now, now just obey me. So, what does he do? On his father's property, his father is a noble in the land. He's a big shot. He's got a big piece of property, enough that probably he has tenant farmers living on his property. And in the middle of his property, he has a statue to Baal. So here's one of the local dignitaries, if you will, with false worship on his property. So Gideon being the tough, tough, you know, macho guy that he was, sneaks out at night, gets a pair of oxen, ties the rope to the oxen and to the idol, and has them pull it down and destroy it. And then he sneaks home, hopes nobody's going to notice. 
It's like you guys that sneak out at Halloween and try to get away with stuff. And, you, know, <laughs> you don't think mom and dad's going to notice? So the locals found out what he did. So they come to Gideon's father. Hey, bring that rotten kid of yours out here, you know. He's just messed up our local community. We're going to kill him. Now, here's my question. What planet has his father been on for the last 40 years? It hasn't been on Yahweh's planet. It hasn't been on God's. He's living with the culture, in the culture. He thinks the culture's normal. Just like so much of our church today thinks that the culture's normal. It's not normal. It's broken. It's tragic. And he's living upside down. And all of a sudden, Gideon's father has an epiphany. He goes, oi, I could have had a V8. I totally, what was I thinking? Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Baal is God, then let Baal choose off my son and take care of this. So why don't you guys back off? He wakes up and realizes we've been doing this all wrong. And then the game is on. And deliverance happens. But here's what I'm trying to communicate is they're so used to living down here that they think it's normal and healthy, and it's not. You're wearing Saul's armor, and it isn't working. You've got to dump it. You need that stuff in your DNA that is transformational, the kind of stuff that Paul speaks about like this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. It doesn't mean I have to experience that in an absolute sense all the time, but I want some installments. I want to get some of that. Does anybody know what I mean? Okay, you know, when, I, when I'm growing in faith and I experience something and I realize after the fact, oh, what just happened is what Paul was talking about here or Jesus was talking. Wow, it actually happened for me. Sorry, I'm a, I know I'm a little odd, but does that make sense? That we should be having that adventure. That's fun. I'm not saying it isn't work, but it's fun to know that he's transforming us and changing us. Anybody remember A.W. Tozer? I've quoted him a lot. And I'm almost done. Aren't you glad? He wrote this. The church has lived through its early travails and now has come to accept an easier way of life. It's like um, Gideon's dad and his community. You know, we're just kind of used to doing this. It's content to carry on its painless program with enough money to pay its bills and membership large enough to assure its future. Its members now look to the for the security rather than for guidance in the battle between good and evil. It has become a school instead of a barracks. Its members are students, not soldiers. They study the experiences of others instead of seeking new experiences of their own. That's what I'm nuts about. Because God has us on this phenomenal adventure if we'll embrace it. So we want to be restored to normal. So what happens in genuine revival? Not average, but normal. The application of the cross into our lives, like Paul is talking about, has a radical effect. We'll be talking more about that because the chapters that come speak into this. But let me just quote from... um, Richard Loveless, his book, uh, The Dynamics of Spiritual Life, that I already quoted from. I just want to show you some bullets. The primary elements of renewal. When the gospel is understood in depth, what it looks like, and, and the way um, Haddon Robinson, that great preacher uh, who, passed, uh, who uh, was president of the CB Seminary in Denver for a while, uh, said, certain things become, under the influence of the Spirit, stark, raving reality stark, raving reality. You can't avoid it. You can't ignore it. So what happens in renewal? Primary elements of renewal. What do they look like? Number one, justification. You're accepted. Now, I know that there are some of us here today that have accepted Christ in our life and we still struggle with whether we're actually accepted. I'm not talking about having a struggle. I'm talking about not even knowing what does that mean to be forgiven and to be received. And I am accepted in the beloved. Justification becomes real. 
When I get genuinely converted and I come to Christ and I get, you mean that's it? I, this is it? I'm in? That's a joyful thing. Yes, I still stumble. Yes, I know I'm broken. Yes, I've got other issues. But I'm in. I'm in the family. That's justification. That becomes reality. Second thing, and this is where we lose it, sanctification becomes stark raving reality. You are free from bondage to sin. Let me put it another way. You actually have authority over the power of sin in your life. But you have to lift your finger. You have to do something. You have to rise up and say, enough. I'm not just going to give, oh, it's just, you know, I'm so sick of hearing Christians, well, I'm just human. So am I. We're all human. Human isn't our problem. Human was made good. Did you know that? Humanity was made as a good thing. Once we were fallen, it's not our humanity, it's our broken sinfulness that's the problem. And there is a disconnect many times with believers in choosing to push back against sin. What temptation have you wrestled with recently? Have you said to yourself, everybody's doing it? What's the sense? Yeah, I'm online looking at this filth, you know. I mean, I can't do anything about it. Everybody's doing it. And boy, it is all over the place. But fill in the blanks, you know. I'm angry at this person. I'm unfriending this person on Facebook because they sneered at me or whatever my issue is, you know. And there's, that's, do you realize that's, there's sin reacting? I, I well, now I'm really going to meddle. You know, we have things, well, that's just the way we are. That's our cultural background. That's it. No, it's not the way God intended you to be. Sometimes those things, feisty, belligerent, stubborn, whatever, it's sin. This is not the way God designed you. It's your brokenness. He wants you to start waging war against it. You have power over sin. That's the reality, stark raving reality of sanctification. When that thing comes alive, it's a, dude, I actually won one. You know, I failed three times, but I won one. That's progress, by the way. Go for it. You know, you don't have to beat yourself up that you failed three times. You won one. Get up, brush yourself off, and keep going. The indwelling spirit, you're not alone. Do I know when the spirit's prompting and speaking and saying stop and whatever? Am I listening? Because he's really there in the believer's life. That becomes reality. All of a sudden, it's not just make-believe. It's not just for Pentecostals. It's for me. And authority and spiritual conflict. You mean there really is a devil? Yes. And he's got a target on your forehead, whether you know it or not. And if you've never, I've never experienced anything, then you're just not living normal. Because if you start living normal, you're going to experience, I know that that was the enemy. You know, when I, can I give you a little insight? When I have thoughts shoved their way into my mind that are totally foreign to me, it's like, I don't, I mean, I have sin propensities. Go ahead, you can leave now. (laughs) We all do. But when I get something to crash into my head that's totally out to lunch, and I mean, it's hammering me, guess what? And when I wake up and go, Whoa, oh, shut up in the name of Jesus, and it's okay to say that. Be quiet in the name, I don't care how you want to put it, I don't care. All you, all you fussy parents, okay, okay. So, but my point is I rebuke you and it stops. It stops. See, there's a spiritual reality. All of a sudden, it becomes alive, becomes stark, raving reality. Am I making sense? So we should be praying for renewal among us. That where we're upside down like Jeroboam, Gideon, his father was asleep, that, it, that we wake up, we have an epiphany, we say, enough, and we start moving forward. Is there a plan for progress? Is there a way to go forward? I don't know where you're at today. You know what? I am confident that the Holy Spirit can touch your button right where you are. There's the thing. You know what he's talking about? There's the thing I want you to work on. And then there are some of us that have just kind of flatlined. You've been sitting still for a very long time. By the way, when you sit still spiritually, you're not sitting still. You're going backwards. You're already losing ground. I don't like to use these illustrations very often, but... 
When I started karate up in Broome County, I was on the floor five days a week if I could be, be trained. Now I'm cut back to two classes a week. I have to drive to Milford. Do you know what happens? It shows. So yesterday I'm in front of my instructor and I'm checking this thing out and he goes, oh, I've got a bunch of comments for you. I'm like, oh. <laughs> because it shows that you're not up on it. Shows. If you've been skating along, floating along, just attending, give me something from Jesus today and then you're out on your own and you're ignoring him all week, trust me, you're going backwards. It shows. It shows. Just like that dear secretary, I've never been prone to wander. Yeah. You're gonzo. Let me close with this story, and then we're going to have the worship team come. Um, Gesundheit. If you don't know where to begin, let me give you three basics. Start with these very essential basics. Read your Bible. Try it. Two minutes a day. Try praying for two minutes a day, because I know for some of us it's not even happening. Come on, be honest. Two minutes. See if it doesn't grow. But commit to it. Word of God, two, day, two minutes. Pray, two minutes. And one other thing, I'm going to sound like a raving maniac. Prioritize coming to church because you don't have any other kingdom work you're engaged in, do you? I told you you would be discipled from the pulpit if you'll come, but you can't disappear and still be discipled. And you know what? I wasn't the only one that said that. A.W. Tozer, Paths to Power. I'm going to close with this. This is a humdinger, by the way. Old school, Reverend Tozer. To obey in the New Testament usage means to give earnest attention to the word, to submit to its authority, and carry out its instructions. To escape the error of salvation, salvation by works, we have fallen into the opposite error of salvation without obedience. That's why I'm saying I'll give you three things to obey. Not obey me, obey God. Do it! Oh, I don't have faith. You're not going to have faith if you don't do it. You start obeying, he will increase your faith. It works together. In fact, well, you know what? I should read this. The Bible knows nothing of salvation apart from obedience. Paul testified that he was sent to preach obedience of the faith among all nations. The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. you got to take off Saul's armor, for crying out loud, and live a lively relationship with him. That's what he's saying. They're two sides of the same coin. The trouble with many of us today is that we are trying to believe without intending to obey. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you, since I've been here, it's been obvious that that is true for many of us. Oh, yeah, I know it says that. I know, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll work on that. Yeah, when? You know what? Life's going to run out. Mine's running out real fast, so I want to help you along quick. So anyway, sorry. Not really. <laughs> the message of the cross contains two elements, promises and declarations to be believed and commandments to be obeyed. Obviously, faith is necessary to the first obedience to the second. It's physically impossible to obey a promise because it's not addressed to the will but to the understanding. It is equally impossible to believe a command. It is not addressed to our understanding but primarily to our will. We have to choose it. Until we have either obeyed or refused to obey, we have not done anything about it yet. The doctrine of Christ, crucified, and the wealth of truths which cluster around it have in them this dual content. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to anyone who believes. And he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. There's nothing incompatible between the two. The weakness in our message today is our overemphasis on faith with a corresponding underemphasis on obedience. This has been carried so far that believe has been made to double for obey in the minds of millions of religious people. A host of mental Christians have been produced whose characters are malformed and whose lives are out of proportion. Imagination has been mistaken for faith and has been made to do service for obedience. 
He has a few other commentaries, but let me just finish. So we find Christians who have lived so long in the rarefied air of imagination, it seems next to impossible to relate them to reality. Non-obedience has paralyzed their normal legs and dissolved their backbones. They slump down into a spongy heap of religious theory, believing everything ardently, but obeying nothing at all. Indeed, they are deeply shocked at the very mention of the word obey. To them, it smacks of heresy and self-righteousness. All this we might pass over as merely one more of those things if it were not that this creed of the moral impasse has influenced practically every corner of the Christian world, has captured Bible schools, has undermined the content of evangelistic preaching, has gone far to decide what kind of Christians we shall all be. It is the conviction of the writer and the reader that the modern misconception of the function of faith and the failure of our teachers to insist upon obedience have weakened the church and retarded revival tragically in the last half century. Make that a century now. The only cure is to remove the cause. This will take some courage, but it will be worth the labor. All of God's people said, we hope so. (laughs) Of this we can be certain. Listen, I love this. God is waiting in all readiness to send down floods of blessing upon us as soon as we begin to obey his plain instructions. We need no new doctrine, no new movement, no key, no imported evangelist or expensive course to show us the way. It's before us as clear as a four-lane highway. To any inquirer, I would say, just do the next thing you know you should to carry out the will of the Lord. If there's sin in your life, quit it. Put away lying, gossiping, dishonesty, whatever your sin may be. Put away extravagance and spending. He goes, he gets right into your face here. Get right with any person you may have wronged. Take up the cross. Live sacrificially. And here's what he says in capitals. Listen to this. Pray, give, attend the Lord's service. Sounds like something I was saying. Start now by doing the next thing. Go on from there. We need to sing. I'm going to ask you guys to come up. I've kept you a little late, my apology. But I'm, I don't do this very often, as you know, because I've been here for two and a half years. But I'm just going to tell you, some of us need to begin with a new obedience to God. We need to make a choice to go from average to normal. So we're singing a song called I Surrender. Don't sing it if you don't mean it. doesn't matter. If you do mean it, Let me encourage you, if you know the Holy Spirit's poking at you, it's time to step up. It's time to stop playing church and sustaining things as they are unhealthily. I want to encourage you to do some business with God. We'll have a place up here to pray. I'll ask uh, uh, leaders that are available, you know, Derek and some others, um, Gene, to be available if you need someone to pray with. Not going to interfere, not going to be nosy. Just want to help you on your journey. So as we close with this song, feel free to come meet the Lord up in the front. You're certainly welcome.